0: Hello, and welcome to Ritz Smith Arbitral Insights podcast channel that brings you informative and insightful commentary of current issues in international arbitration and dispute resolution. I'm Gilberto Guerrero Roca from the Miami office, and today we're going to discuss two relevant topics in the arena of investor state arbitration. The first one deals with whether dual nationals can bring claims against sovereign states And the second one deals with the new trends on the definition of investment. To help us understand how tribunals and national courts have recently handled the issue of jurisdictional challenges in cases involving dual nationals, today we have a very special guest, Luis Bergola. Luis is a teaching fellow in the International Economic Law Business and Policy LLM program at Stanford Law School. And he is a professor of practice at the University of Arizona, James E. Rogers College of Law, where he teaches contracts and torts. Luis Bergola has published many articles on international economic law, international arbitration, evidence law, law and society, and law and technology. Luis also maintains a private practice that focuses on international dispute resolution, having represented clients in commercial as well as investment arbitrations. Finally, Luis is licensed to practice law in Venezuela, Spain, and in several US jurisdictions, including New York and the District of Columbia. Welcome Luis to Ritz Smith's Arbitral Insights. Thank you very much for the kind invitation, Hilberto. Well, Luis, there's no question that today investor state arbitration is considered expensive, lengthy, and very complex, including the fact that uh, claimants have to fulfill the prerequisites and the threshold to establish jurisdiction. Of course, arbitral tribunal have the power to decide and determine their own jurisdiction based on the principle of competence competence. Today, we will focus on the key elements of the jurisdictional inquiry, the ratione Persona and the ratione Materia elements. And here precisely is where I would like to ask you, Luis, what are the most recent developments concerning dual national in investor state arbitration? Dual nationals are allowed to file claims against one of their own countries? Well, thank you, Hilberto, for this question. In fact, the
1: topic that you raise is vast and the precedent and doctrinal commentaries go back for decades. But the most recent developments are in fact from three or so weeks ago. Here I'm referring to a decision by the Paris Court of Appeals that on the second remand from the French Supreme Court dismissed the respondent's very contested annulment decision against a jurisdiction award in the case known as Serafin Garcia Armas v. Venezuela, a case that started with an expropriation more than 10 years ago and which I will refer to as the Serafin case. The relative good news for the investors is that this last decision by the Paris Court of Appeals from three, four weeks ago, automatically granted the exit to the final award that was issued in the Garcia Armas or the Seraphim case. This means that the investors, the Garcia Armas, can finally get in line with the other creditors to whom Venezuela owes billions of dollars. So I don't know if that's fully good news for the investors, but finally the award seems to be
0: final and enforceable, and we'll have to see what happens next. No question, Luis. Tell us more about the background of the Garcia-Armas case, please.
1: Sure. So by way of context, let me first say that the Seraphim case is an expropriation case against Venezuela arising under the 1995 Spain-Venezuela BIT. Around 2010, Venezuela issued certain measures that affected the claimants 2001 and 2007 investments in two local companies in the Venezuelan food sector to bear with me. And don't forget about these dates because they are important. And I'm going to explain why. Then the claimants acquired the Spanish nationality between the dates that I mentioned, the, the two dates of the investments, and therefore they were dual Spanish-Venezuelan nationals at the time of the expropriation and at the time of the filing of the request for arbitration, but not necessarily at the time of making the first investment. In 2012, the claimant started a paris seated PCA-UNCITRAL arbitration in Venezuela, in which Venezuela took part. So the Array of procedural issues in the seraphim case is very rich. And I'm going to tell you why. First, because the jurisdictional objections that Venezuela raised, addressing the Razione Materia and the Razione Persona elements of jurisdiction during the arbitration, and also because of Venezuela's reliance on the municipal courts of the seat of the arbitration, which for this case, were Paris and the courts, the French courts. So the whole exercise has served Venezuela's overall strategy to have the award set aside. And when I say this, I believe this would be the best case scenario for Venezuela on the one hand. And on the other hand, the state's strategy could have been to delay paying or not paying at all the final award that was issued over $200 million. In my opinion, this would be the second best case scenario that Venezuela is trying to achieve with its strategy, uh, using
0: or relying on the French courts. Can you tell us more about the challenges Venezuela raised to the tribunal's jurisdiction? Yes, and I and I think that was
1: the second part of my answer to your previous question. So let me go there. In October of 2012, Venezuela objected, as I said, first to the razione persona element of jurisdiction. That was because the claimants were Venezuelan nationals. And Venezuela argued that, as such, the claimants should not have the right to sue their own country before an international forum. This is the traditional argument that states use to defeat these types of claims and an argument that has been successful in many other arbitrations. And second, Venezuela also objected to the tribunal's Razione Materia element of jurisdiction because the claimants weren't Spanish, Spanish nationals, at the time they started making the investments in Venezuela. As you would remember, this would be at the time they make the first round of investments in
0: 2001. And of course, with this is a very typical jurisdictional objection that the vast majority of respondent states raise during any given investor state arbitration proceeding, right? Right.
1: Indeed, the argument is typical, but the seraphim case is distinguishable from other arbitration cases involving dual nationals who sue their own state. In response to the jurisdictional challenge in this particular case in 2014, the claimants withdrew their claims relative to the 2001 investments. You would recall these are the investments, the first round of investments that the claimants made in this case. In other words, they withdrew their claims for the investments that were made prior to their becoming Spanish citizens. or Said in a different way, they withdrew the claims for the time when they were only Venezuelan citizens.
0: Logically, one would expect this course of action to have brought Venezuelan jurisdictional challenge to an end, right? Kind of. Because,
1: granted, in the long run, the claimants had a winning argument, but it simply took too long for the win to materialize for the claimants. While it's true that the December 2014 jurisdiction award that affirmed the tribunal's Razione Persona jurisdiction on the one hand, and also the Razione Materia jurisdiction on the other hand, this taken together paved the way for the tribunal's 2019 final award, ordering Venezuela to pay over $214 million to the Garcia Armas. But, What Venezuela caused to happen before the French courts later is simply mind-blowing. And don't get me wrong. I think Venezuela did nothing but to exercise rights that were conferred to the state or to the parties in an arbitration under French law, the seat of this arbitration. Right. And what happened in France? Well, what happened in France is curious. Basically, a litigation saga before the French courts resulted and the procedures extended for over approximately six years following Venezuela's first request to annul the arbitral tribunal's jurisdiction award which happened in 2017. And it's important to note here that this bid by Venezuela has yielded mixed results for both parties. and and let me go chronologically through what happened in France. In April of 2017, the Paris Court of Appeals annulled the jurisdictional award, basically saying claims by dual nationals are okay to go under under the parameters of the Spain-Venezuela BIT of 1995. But the court disagreed with the Razione Materia decision in line with the dissenting arbitrator's view that nationality at the time of the investment mattered for the determination of of what is an investment. And as you will remember, this is what prompts the claimant's withdrawal of their claims prior to their becoming Spanish nationals again. Then... In February of 2019, the French Supreme Court quashed the judgment of the Court of Appeals that I just discussed, basically telling the court below to annul the entire jurisdictional award because the two jurisdictional elements we are discussing here are to be interpreted as concurrent and remands the case to the Court of Appeals. In 2020, as expected on the remand, the Court of Appeals fully annulled the jurisdictional award and this prompted Venezuelan authorities to celebrate the outcome and move the claimants to appeal the judgment one more time before the French Supreme Court. So this is not ending yet. In December 2021, the French Supreme Court again issued a ruling on the matter and annulled the June 2020 judgment, holding that the Court of Appeals was not authorized to pencil in, to write in, requirements regarding the ratione materia element of jurisdiction that were not expressly written in the Spain-Venezuela BIT of 1995
0: and remanded the case one more time. Do you think that this case could be seen as a bad sign for stakeholders to select Paris as the seat of any given arbitration? That's a very interesting question.
1: and, And there are commentaries that go in that line Paris is losing its attractiveness as a popular seat for international arbitration because of the uncertainty that we have seen in the way the newly created international chamber of the Paris Court of Appeals has handled this annulment actions by states. But from the perspective of repeat player states who are sophisticated players in the system and we can discuss more about the social legal nature of investor state arbitration later on from the perspective of states what the french jurisdiction uh, did in the seraphine case and what the french jurisdiction is doing with other similar annulment actions seems to make the jurisdiction very attractive for them to to accept arbitrating in France, especially in the context of PCA, uncitral, ad hoc type of arbitrations where, where the parties do have to agree uh exposed claim as to where to seat the arbitration. So it depends on the perspective from from where you look at the at the problem. And I think in this particular case Venezuela has taken a lot of of advantage by subjecting its arbitration to the French jurisdiction. I don't
0: know if that answers your question. Absolutely. And there's any recent development in the litigation saga in in the Serafin case?
1: Well, yes, I was going to conclude that about a month ago, the Court of Appeals dismissed Venezuela's annulment action altogether and granted the exequator to the to the final award in the Seraphine case. And this is something that in my opinion, and I am not a French qualified lawyer, but still I think it would render a third trip to the French Supreme Court highly unlikely, if not impossible, should Venezuela think that it could entertain another bid to have have this case ended on jurisdictional grounds. We'd like to think that, that the case ends here, but the respondent states strategic use of jurisdictional challenges as we have seen in this case and other similar cases seem to pay off. And I say this at least in as much uh, as the payment of the award in the Seraphine case has been delayed since
0: 2019. Mind-blowing, indeed. What would you say are the main takeaways of this case?
1: Well, if I were to summarize my remarks here, I would like to share at least five important takeaways. Let me try to do that in the most organized way uh, I can. First, nationality has got to do a lot with jurisdiction. On the one hand, the mere presence of issues of dual nationality almost make it certain that jurisdictional objections will occur. And on the other hand, they also contribute to expanding the array of rights that are available to dual nationals. Second, importantly, the quilt of seemingly incompatible jurisdictional decisions invites dual national claimants to pay careful attention to the applicable rules to the arbitration on the issue of dual nationality. And I say this because sometimes, as is the case under the Exit convention, claims by dual nationals are simply prohibited, the Luis Garcia armas being one interesting example. But some other times, as under the CAFTA Dominican Republic Treaty, the claimant's effective or dominant nationality, if it is the same as the respondent state, is something that might hinder the tribunal's ability to exercise jurisdiction. And finally, the silence on the issue under the Uncitral arbitration rules has resulted in different tribunals reaching different decisions. An example of this Dicotomic scenario is the case that I have been discussing, the Seraphine case and the Manuel Garcia Armas case, a case that arises out of the, a, a common set of facts, as you can tell from the last name of the claimants, in which the Hague-based PCA tribunal declined its jurisdiction despite this common factual background that I mentioned. Third, ISDS, as I mentioned earlier, is a repeat players game where the respondents and the parties council are the quintessential repeat players. As in Seraphim, the repeat player respondent and a near insolvent sanctioned state seems to comfortably rely on smaller, nonetheless very sophisticated firms that are willing to deploy more extreme, outside the box, if you will, defense strategies, which in the aggregate serve well their holistic defense approach. Whereas big law firms, on the other hand, play for the development of rules. And for example here, they do so, so the strategy results in the expansion of rights for dual nationals in general. We've seen this in, in the surfing case and they not necessarily play for tangible gains in the particular case at a particular procedural stance. The fourth takeaway, if you indulge with me, is that the municipal courts seem to be concerned with the notion of the rule of law. They seem to be more concerned with the notion that the rule of law than they are with the efficiency of the arbitration. Municipal courts in this case that I have been discussing today adopted a very normative approach that blatantly disregarded all the mootness arguments related to the claimant's subsequent withdrawal of claims prior to their acquiring the Spanish citizenship. And finally, I I promise I will end with this fifth takeaway. In the end, for investors' lengthier and more expensive proceedings and delayed and low chances of executing the award is something that could render the prospect of recovery rather illusory. I would like to ask a question because uh, I think it's time for us to flip roles. And uh, I would like to hear from you about any recent developments regarding the concept of what constitutes
0: an investment. Absolutely. Let me refer to the Gramercy versus Peru case. This award was recently rendered and deals with the definition of investment. The three principal contributions and takeaways are, in my opinion, that first, uh, based on the Vienna Convention of the Law of the Treaties, we should rely only on the language of the governing treaty to define investment and investors. Tribunals shouldn't create prerequisites beyond the boundaries of the governing treaty. Secondly the criteria set forth by leading awards in Salini and in Phoenix are important, but tribunals are not bound by, the, by their findings because some of their prompts could lead to uncertainty, speculation, and controversial discussions. For instance, the fourth prompt in Salini deals with whether the investment has contributed to the economic development, to the host's country. And in Phoenix, if we pay close attention to points four, five, and six, we can see that they are related to not only economic development, also on whether the investment was made in compliance with local law, which Luis, you know, are usually changed and subject to the interpretation of local courts. And whether the investment was made in bona fide, which is another concept that is also subject to speculation creating uncertainty. And third, last but not least, that financial instruments and securities are investment protected under any given treaty as far as they fall within its own definition of investment. In other words, securities shouldn't be ruled out per se just for their their nature, like it happened in the past in other cases. But here is also, it's fair to mention that this award has a very strong dissenting opinion by the respondent appointed arbitrator. Luis, as you probably know, she's a prominent arbitrator who has been appointed for almost 200 times by respondent states, because she's considered the most radical pro-state and anti-investor. In her dissenting opinion, she argues that Gramercy didn't make an investment. Secondly, that claimants didn't make any contribution to the economic development of Peru, which is the fourth from in Salini and in Phoenix. And third, that Gramercy purchased the bonds, knowing that they were a problem with the determination of their value by the Peruvian Congress and the executive branch. This is wonderful, Hilberto. I, I, I think these remarks
1: of yours speak about the value of the importance of the strategic approach that states especially uh, adopt in defending uh, arbitration cases that are most often than not Resulting in a favorable outcome for the state based on jurisdictional and procedural grounds as opposed to a victory on the merits of the case. Thank you so much for the invitation, Hilberto. Back to you.
0: Oh, well, my pleasure. This was a great opportunity to discuss the new trends on the arena of investor state arbitration dealing with dual national and the definition of investment. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned with the new edition of Reed Smith Arbitral Insights.
2: Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McCardle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, Search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on ReedSmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcasts on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, ReedSmith.com and our social media accounts at LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter.